stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. There are a few things we take for granted more than our drinking water. When we want water, we turn on the tap and there it is. And by and large, we trust that the water coming out of our tap is clean and safe for us to use. We are completely dependent on that water. We use it for everything in our lives, from brushing our teeth, to bathing, to cooking with it, and obviously drinking it. But what happens when something goes wrong? What happens when that water becomes tainted? On this episode of the 519 Podcast, we take a look at how an entire town's water supply became so dangerous that it led to severe illness and death. Here's your host, Scott Kitching. In May 2000, the small town of Walkerton in Bruce County experienced Canada's worst ever outbreak of E. coli contamination. And when it was over, seven people were dead and more than 2,000 had become ill. E. coli can be relatively harmless. It often leads to symptoms that aren't much different than those of a common gastrointestinal bug. But the strain that got into Walkerton's water supply was different. E. coli 0157 can in fact be lethal. Usually, it's found in contaminated burger patties. That's how it got the nickname the hamburger disease. But it wasn't some burger patties at a weekend barbecue that sent the town of Walkerton reeling. It was something far more widespread, something every single person in the town would consume. It was the town's water supply. This is Teresa McClenahan. She's the executive director and counsel with the Canadian Environmental Law Association. CELA got involved with the Walkerton case, helping with the call for a public inquiry. This is from a municipal water supply that people, you know, trust, turn on the tap and expect to be safe. Um, so that sent shockwaves around the world, honestly. Operators in Ontario didn't think our groundwater could be at risk. And so the shocking thing to the whole sector was the fact that people could get sick from drinking groundwater. And even the oversight agencies like the Ministry of the Environment and health units testified at the inquiry that they were shocked and didn't realize the extent of illness that could arise from contaminated drinking water. What became known as the Walkerton water crisis began in mid-May of 2000 with a routine check of the town's water supply. The local Public Utilities Commission logged the water quality as fine, even though it was anything but. Shortly afterwards, people started getting sick. Larger-than-usual absenteeism numbers were seen in local schools. Then, children started showing up at hospitals. They reported symptoms like diarrhea and flu-like illness. Doctors became concerned with a number of patients who had similar symptoms. And so, they contacted the Ministry of Health. They suspected that something was seriously wrong. The area's medical officer of health, Dr. Murray McQuig, went to Stan Cable, the foreman of the PUC, to ask about the town's water. Cable assured the doctor it was fine. Little did Dr. McQuig know the logs had been falsified. McQuig didn't trust those logs. He believed that with the number of children getting sick, something had to be going on. There wasn't anything else that could have caused that many people to get sick in such a short period of time. He decided to take his own water samples and confirmed that there was indeed E. coli contamination. On May 21st, 2000, McQuig issued a boil water advisory, officially warning the public to not drink the tap water unless it had been boiled first. Sadly, it was too late. On May 24th, Walkerton saw its first four deaths related to E. coli poisoning. The victims were three adults and a baby. At the time, Walkerton's population was less than 5,000, and nearly half of the town had become sick. By the end of May, 
three more people would die, bringing the number of deaths to seven. Schools were closed, people were panicking. Some even packed their bags and left town. Eventually, the town's water system was cleaned. It was flushed with chlorine in order to purge the water of E. coli. Pipes in each house had to be individually disinfected. It was seven months before Walkerton's water would be safe again for public consumption. Dr. McQuig later said this catastrophe was likely preventable. But there were still so many questions, and so there were calls for a public inquiry. The community, the province, the entire country wanted to know how did this happen and who was to blame. The province did at the time agree to call a public inquiry and, and appoint a Justice O'Connor, and he held it in two parts. The first part was about what went wrong in terms of the sequence, the causation. And the second part was what could be done to stop this from ever happening again. Justice O'Connor commissioned study papers from experts and organizations like ours and academics and many others. And he also held town halls with communities all over Ontario to understand their perspectives on drinking water. And um, and then, of course, the, the inquiry itself with cross-examination of witnesses um, to really get to the root of what went wrong. The origin of the tragedy can be traced to a weather system that hit the area the weekend before the first case was reported. Heavy rain hit the Walkerton area, and cow manure that had been spread on area fields for fertilizer got into the groundwater and ended up in drinking water intakes. If the water had been properly treated, no one should have gotten sick. But Justice O'Connor found that the chlorinator of at least one well was not working due to lack of maintenance, and that allowed the E. coli to flourish. The nearby manure that had been contaminated doesn't do anything to the cows, which is why people don't know that there's an issue. Um, you know, once in a hundred year storm, nearby proximity, and then this pathway. So they found that all out, made report on the on the findings, but in addition, there had been deception, unfortunately, by those operating the system who had hidden some adverse results that came back, even in the wake of people falling ill in the community. So the other thing he found is that the health unit, which was, you know, really rapidly trying to um, assess the uh, what had happened and what the source was, because people kept drinking water for several days, not knowing that the water was the issue. And they finally, through sheer, you know, detective work, pinpointed that it had to be the water. They didn't know how or why at the time. Um, so that deception was a big problem as well. And um, and that had had to do with the, uh, uh, among other things, cuts to labs and privatization of labs in Ontario. So the lab didn't know it should send the results to the health unit or the Ministry of the Environment. So there were there were quite a few things that went wrong. Once the origin of the catastrophe was investigated, it was time to take a step back and look at how water systems are treated as a whole in this province. It was time to take a look at whether this could happen again and what sort of regulations could be put in place to make sure that it didn't. CELA, on behalf of citizens and the Water Treatment Association, called for a multi-barrier approach where requirements are put in every stage of water treatment so that if something goes wrong, it would be caught early. In the multi-barrier approach, if I start at the top, what we're doing is um, preventing pollution or contaminants from getting into the drinking water source in the first place. And the source could be groundwater underground with wells pumping to the to the supply, or it could be um, 
uh, surface water like a river or a lake and municipalities across Ontario have both types. Walkerton had groundwater. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a new law called the Clean Water Act that was introduced and is in place across much of southern Ontario now and certain parts of the north where committees under the management of the local conservation authorities and representing a variety of land users and actors and interests and in the, in the area um, agree on technical assessments that show what the potential threats are and the uh, plans that should prevent those threats and then those get approved by the Ministry of the Environment. So those are in place and they can result and have resulted in some land use changes or whether you could have fuel storage within proximity to the to the water source. Um, and, and they're heavily dependent on science showing either there's a pathway through karst or sand and gravel, or uh, if it's a river source, you know, how long it takes water to move down the river if there's a spill and, and, and measures are put in place. The second part is the treatment system and making sure it is well monitored and up to date. The water has to be assessed and treated in live time in response to what's in it. There are always things to look out for when it comes to our water. We have, you know, spring rains and that could bring a whole bunch of mud with the water. And of course, that's going to get filtered very well in, treat in surface sources. But you need to know that fast enough to adjust your processes in the water treatment plant. So now those treatment plants have to be inspected and certified and meet minimum requirements. And they also have to have um, certified operators now, very stringent training and retesting requirements, no more grandfathering, which had happened with the operators at Walkerton. The Safe Drinking Water Act and the Clean Water Act were adopted after what happened in Walkerton. These laws ensure the maximum level of any particular contaminants that can be in water. These amounts used to be just a guidance. Now they are mandatory standards. So there's extra monitoring requirements and, and uh, supervision of the distribution system and financing requirements for both the water system and the distribution system and looking forward in time to make sure that the, the whole system will be properly financed and rigorous requirements there for um, municipalities to keep on top of that. And then councillors for the first time ever were given legal responsibility under the Safe Drinking Water Act um, uh, to ensure that safe water is being provided to their community. Um, and there's a liability, uh, an actual offense, if they don't. Uh, they have um, the ability to protect themselves from liability by being vigilant, and there's good guidance from the province on that, uh, as well as asking the professionals looking after their um, system to answer their questions. Um, but before that, there was no one who actually had the legal responsibility for safe water. So now for municipalities, there is, or, or if it's a private system, then for their directors and uh, officers. It's been 23 years since the Walkerton tragedy and around two decades since these clean water laws were put in place. This begs the question, where are we now? Sela did a study on the 121 recommendations given by Justice O'Connor to find out which ones still need some work. An area that we did have some concern and needs improvement has to do with regulating agriculture. Um, so the the aspect under the Nutrient Management Act that does require large farms uh, with um, animals uh, or poultry to have a uh, nutrient management plan that is in place and similarly municipalities, for example, who might be taking biosolids out of their sewer treatment plants and then land applying them, they have to have nutrient management plans as well and approved 
by the ministry. Um, but on some uh, other aspects of agricultural regulation, we're concerned that um, small farms uh, are not being adequately addressed and they can still be high risk to the source. Mm-hmm. Um, because in, in in particular, the Walkerton inquiry itself arose with a small farm. In fact, a farm who was following the best practices of the day was storing manure on mm-hmm. a concrete pad, which most didn't even do at the time. Um, it was the proximity to the to the water source that was the issue. Another major potential source of pathogens or metals or other contaminants, mm-hmm. chemicals to drinking water, particularly because we have lots and lots of contexts in Ontario where an upstream community has wastewater flowing downstream and then a downstream community is taking that water in as their water supply. Granted, they're filtering it and they're treating it. But the question is um, whether or not uh, it's treating everything that it, you know, adequately. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so he did recommend that um, the uh, provincial government should do uh, big studies to remove heavy metals and priority organics that are not removed by conventional treatment. It's pretty much a case by case study right now, depending mm-hmm. on the particular plant, what's going into that plant in terms of residential and industry and so on, and then the receiving water. And we think it should be um, more rigorous to a set of minimum standards. Because of what happened in Walkerton, we're a lot further along and not having something like this happen again. To many people, it's a horrifying incident that has long passed. But what about the people in Walkerton that still live with lingering effects today? What about the people that were so affected that they still maybe question every single sip of water they take? There was restitution to be made with the communities affected by the water supply. It started in March of 2003 in the criminal trial against Stan and Frank Cable, who neglected their duties of competently treating the town's water. They were both eventually charged in the public health disaster, facing one count each of public nuisance, uttering a forgery, and breach of public duty. Stan Cable was sentenced to one year in jail. Frank Cable got nine months of house arrest. The Ontario government settled a class action lawsuit, offering a compensation deal to residents of Walkerton. Each resident could receive a minimum of $2,000, and the payments were not capped. Those who got seriously ill or had relatives who died would be eligible for more, as would anyone who suffers health problems down the road. And there are many, many people who are left with persistent health problems. Approximately 500 people in Walkerton now have chronic bowel problems. Over 100 have permanent kidney damage. And this doesn't even cover the emotional trauma and fear that the town experienced. The water tragedy also took a financial toll on the town. The economic impact of the Walkerton disaster is estimated at $155 million. This includes household and corporate spending on things like bottled water and disinfection equipment, costs to fix the water system, the effect on real estate values, and lost business revenue. With this level of economic devastation, it makes sense to be concerned about whether or not something like this could ever happen again. For municipal water systems that are included in the Clean Water Act, uh, then I think it's very unlikely that we would have Walkerton happen again. But for those systems, for example, some in um, Eastern Ontario or or Northern Ontario who don't have the Clean Water Act, you could have a major influx of contaminant into the system and it could overwhelm the treatment system. For rural communities, including in, you know, highly populated Southern Ontario, like 
where I am in Brant County, um, there are many, many, many towns and villages that don't have a treated water supply. So in my area, for example, Burford, Scotland, Oakland um, are like that. Well, parts of them have a treated water supply from the airport, but many parts of them don't yet. And um, so again, there needs to be awareness. So Sila is enormously frustrated with that because we think hundreds of thousands of um, households are not being protected in a way that would be so simple to do by just elevating these towns into the local plan and then taking a look at the threats, just like we to look at the threats for the municipal supply, like manure spreading or fuel storage or whatever, then we could do the same for these towns as well. And then in addition, in Northern Ontario and Eastern Ontario, there are many, many, many communities, even cities, small cities that aren't in source water protection plan areas. Uh, and there was supposed to be a, a substitute process that hasn't happened. So they're not getting the benefit of source water protection at all. And they're only relying on those other barriers like treatment and distribution. One of the most glaring holes right now in Ontario's water systems is in our First Nations communities. There still are uh, something approaching, you know, 45 or so First Nations communities with continuing long-term boil water advisories. Now that's radically reduced from the hundreds that had had long-term boil water advisories a few years ago because there have been provincial and federal and First Nations efforts to reduce those. Although most Ontario communities have safe and treated water, there is a portion of our population that does not live with that same luxury. The reality is we may be just a few funding cuts away from the next potential Walkerton-like crisis. So vigilance and not taking safe water for granted was one of the big lessons. And I also recommend to the public the same thing. None of us should take safe water for granted. First of all, we should say thank you to those who keep our water system safe. But we really should avail ourselves of the public information about um, the water testing for our system and, and um you know, should express uh, the fact that we do pay attention and that we appreciate safe water to those making decisions around the financing of our systems and, and that kind of thing. And also not complain if water rates need to be adjusted because water rates in Ontario are very, very low in um, comparison to most jurisdictions and certainly in comparison to buying bottled water, which you do not need to do if you're on municipal treated water in Ontario. It's very, very safe. It's very important for people to uh, pay attention to their own source of water, to look into their Clean Water Act source protection plan, to see if it comes up for renewal and consultation, to provide public input on that, to show again there's public support as well, just to make sure that these protections stay in place and remain strong, you know, Perfect. into the future. This episode of the 519 Podcast was hosted by Scott Kitching. It was written and produced by Patrick Magermans and Haley Chang. 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.